chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. As we've noted all along as we've studied the book of 1 Peter, that Peter's purpose in writing this letter, this epistle, is to remind God's people of God's grace. To remind God's people of God's grace, His grace in saving them, His grace in preserving them in this life, His grace in promising them a glorious, eternal inheritance in heaven, and yes, even His grace to deliver us there in His time. On the basis of that amazing grace, Peter also writes to comfort or encourage suffering Christians and to teach them how to live with steadfast hope in this world, even though we are strangers here, like visitors in a foreign land. So at the very beginning of the letter, Peter uses a very rich description of God's people when he calls us elect exiles, elect exiles. A description that highlights the Christian's strangeness in this world, and yet at the same time, their special relationship to the God of heaven. And then at the end of the letter, in chapter 5, verse 12, he specifically states his purpose when he says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. All of this is why I've entitled our study of 1 Peter, Steadfast Hope in a Foreign Land. Peter's letter is divinely inspired pastoral counseling to help us remember and recognize that we are strangers in this world and we ought not to feel at home here. But in this world, we can live faithfully and godly with steadfast hope knowing who our God is, remembering what He has done for us and what He has promised to us both now and in eternity. Now, one significant pattern that I've noticed so far in in Peter, and it, it continues on, is how rapidly Peter moves back and forth between grand heavenly truths and specific practical applications. Here's what I mean. In chapter 1, Peter begins by acknowledging the Christians' specific difficulties and their their difficult situation in this world. That's chapter 1, verse 1. But immediately he lifts them up to the truth of what God has done for them and who they are in Christ. That's verses 2 through 12. Then, right after that, after exalting in the glorious truths of salvation and our heavenly inheritance, Peter brings that down to the here and now and applies it in practical terms, calling us to be holy, to be steadfast, and to be ready to resist the the ungodly pressures of the world. That's chapter 1, verses 3 through 16. But then he no sooner says that as if to encourage and to assure us that this is possible. Once again, he lifts our eyes right back to heaven and to Christ and to the glorious truth of the holiness that he has accomplished for us and the sanctification that he has promised to complete in us. That's chapter 1, verses 17 through 25. So you see, up and down. It doesn't stop in chapter 1. In chapter 2, Peter brings that glorious heavenly truth again 
down to a practical application here and now. And he commands Christians to put away sinful behavior and to long for God's word so that we might grow into mature, well-behaved, faithful saints. That's chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. But again, lest anyone become legalistic or man-centered in that effort, he again lifts our minds and hearts toward Christ by highlighting that this is the work that Christ is doing in us by his power for his glory. That's chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Or I mean, verses 4 through 10. Now, one lesson that I learned from that is clearly this. Make no mistake, the grand and glorious doctrinal truths of heaven and salvation and grace are incredibly practical here and now. Don't separate the two. Don't say, I'm tired of doctrinal stuff, I want the practical stuff. Friends, you don't have any meaningful practical stuff without the doctrine that backs it up. There is no conflict between the two. In fact, they're inseparable. And now, in the last several weeks, we've been working through verses 11 through 25. I know, very slowly, but we're getting there. And in these verses, Peter has yet again brought heavenly truths down to practical application by calling Christians to live honorably before the eyes of a watching and sinful world. Peter teaches us that because of our new life in Christ, by God's grace alone, our behavior right here and right now matters. And it doesn't just matter what we do, it even matters how we do it. So, verses 11 through 25, we have grouped these verses under one heading that we've called honorable living in a foreign land. Honorable living in a foreign land. That is, these are verses of practical instruction in how to live for God's glory and according to godly character even in the midst of a sinful and unbelieving generation that wants to pressure us the other way. That's what Peter is teaching us here. And so in verses 11 and 12, we saw the command to honorable living. If you want to see more on that, I, I point you back to the sermon from April 18th, and you'll see the command to honorable living. That is the call to put away evil passions to put away evil behavior, and to live in a way that displays the character of God to the world. Then in verses 13 through 19, we saw the context of honorable living. Specifically, that our response to our civil authorities and our relationships in the workplace are above all to demonstrate godly character marked not by self-assertion, and self-preservation, but by submission and respect. If you want to see more or hear more on that, I point you to last week's message. In our text for today, verses 19 through 21, we're going to consider now the consequences of honorable living. The consequences of honorable living. What can we expect in this world if we strive to live honorably according to Christ's character and commands, what can we expect? And here again, P 
Peter is going to acknowledge the reality of our present circumstances. He is going to remember, he's going to acknowledge that the suffering is real. And those who would live godly in this world must expect persecution. But as Peter acknowledges the reality, he is also once again going to lift our eyes to Christ in order to teach us how to think heavenly thoughts, how to think godly thoughts in the midst of earthly suffering and sorrow. So our text for today is 1 Peter chapter 2, 19-21, and our subject is the consequences of honorable or godly living in this present world, what, can, what we can expect and how we must respond. I want us to begin our reading this morning, though, in verse 11, and see the context that leads up to these verses. And so I want us to read from verse 11 through the end of the chapter, in 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you'd follow along with me as I read, starting in chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it, if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We understand from everything that we have studied so far that we are set apart by God as his own special people, if we are in Christ. We are born again to a living hope, and we are called to live godly lives godly, hopeful lives in this present world. We have learned that this means we must resist the sinful passions of our flesh. We must put sin to death in our lives, 
and we must strive to do good as a display of God's character to the unbelievers around us. And we have seen that this involves submitting respectfully to our authorities and striving to be known above all by the fruit of the Spirit. We might expect then at this point to hear some words of encouragement, wouldn't we? That by these godly actions, we will win over the world around us. We will win over our enemies and go on to live happily ever after. Right? I mean, after all, that's the way it's supposed to be, at least according to the storybooks. And after all, doesn't the proverb say a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger? Am I not to expect that if I just do right, things will go well with me and things will go well for me? Right? Is that a reasonable expectation? Well, not exactly. Yes, it is generally true what the proverb says, that you can usually diffuse a tense situation with a gentle word. But what Peter is talking about here is an entirely different kind of context. Remember, he is writing to this letter to Christians who are already suffering. And they specifically are suffering for being Christians. And he is encouraging them to remain faithful to the Lord and, and, to the, and, and to remain faithful in their godly living, even though their Christian character is contrary to the values and the sensitivities of the world around them. This is why we speak of our steadfast hope and honorable living as being in the context of a foreign land. Devotion to the Lord. Above all, and the godliness of Christian conduct are foreign to the world in which we live today. And if we are going to live as God's people, devoted to serving Him and displaying His character in this world, we need to expect certain consequences. So, in verses 19 and 21, because Peter keeps reality in his mind, he has experienced it and he knows where this is going, he outlines for us the consequences of honorable living. Now, these verses are specifically set in the context of verse 18, which addresses the workplace and submitting to unjust masters. However, when he gets to verse 19, he starts speaking in general terms. He's laying out a general principle that applies not just to that situation, but across the board. So what he is saying here has to do with any suffering Christian and what any suffering Christian faces at the hands of the, of the world for Christ's sake. Peter's point here is not to discourage us, but to encourage God's people by giving the right context and the right understanding for why this suffering happens and then to teach us how to respond. Don't think it's strange, he will later say, but be faithful. Here's how to respond. He acknowledges the difficult reality that those who live godly in this present world are facing. But then once again, he lifts our eyes to the glorious truths of heaven 
and to the, to the grace of Christ so that we remember that endurance in this life, endurance through the suffering is worth it and it has a glorious end. That's what he wants us to understand. So, as we look at this passage, the first and most obvious consequence that Peter mentions here is a negative one. And it is that the consequence of honorable living in a foreign land is mistreatment from the world. Mistreatment from the world. Look at verses 19 and 20. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, the first thing we need to notice about this uh, mistreatment is the nature of it, the nature of the suffering that Peter is talking about here. It is a specific kind of suffering. It is a distinctly Christian suffering. While Scripture has, to, has plenty to say about the general difficulties of living in a sinful world, Peter is talking about something specific here. He's not talking about general discomfort and frustration that all humans face as a result of living in a fallen world. He is not talking about the frustration and challenge that we face when inanimate objects in this world do not work properly. Nor is he talking about the difficulty of health problems or economic crises or things like that. He is specifically addressing the abuse that Christians face from this world because they are Christians and because they are acting in a godly way. He is speaking of those specific times when he says, mindful of God, one endures suffering, sorrows while suffering unjustly. Those times when you do good and suffer. And by that, he means those times when you have stood your ground spiritually. You have displayed Christ-like character and have been somehow mistreated for it. That is the nature of the suffering Peter is addressing here. And the second thing we need to notice is the certainty of this suffering and mistreatment. Peter speaks of this as if it is to be expected by all of God's people. You say, well, I'm a Christian. But I don't live in the Middle East. I don't live in Asia where Christianity has been banned. I live here. This doesn't apply to me. Yes, Peter says, it does. Peter doesn't say if we suffer. Nor does he speak of the rare occasion when some isolated individual or event mistreats us. He doesn't even speak to those few individuals who are the unfortunate ones, like the martyrs, who have suffered here and there. He uses terms of certainty, like when one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly, and when you do good and suffer for it. It is to be expected that in some way God's people are going to feel like strangers in this world because we are God's people. And it is to be expected that the world is going to view us the same way, and they are going to treat us accordingly. Peter has taught us that we have been set apart from this world, that we are born again to a living and heavenly hope, that we have a new life, a new love, 
a new identity and a new purpose. And all of that makes us strange in the eyes of the world. This is why I don't understand for the life of me churches that are doing their best to look like the world around them. Friends, if you look like the world around you, you are of this world. That is not of God. If we believe what we say we believe, and if we follow the book we say we follow, if we are born again to a living hope in Jesus Christ alone, we are going to look strange to the world. And we are going to be strangely different in how we live. And Peter has explained what that looks like. He wants us to understand that this world is no friend to God nor to his people. He's not telling us we can't enjoy life. Yes, we ought to enjoy life by God's grace, the things that he has offered us to enjoy. But we, we must not be too attached to this world. And we certainly must not spend our days trying to beg the world to like us and accept us. It's a common trend now. I've talked about this before, and I heard it again this week. Christian leaders standing up before a watching world and throwing their brothers and sisters under the bus with false accusations about what they do or do not think in order to make himself look woke. I won't hide the issue. In order to make himself look like he's on the same side of history as the world. And I'm going to tell you something, beloved. I'm tired of it. And you ought to be too. I'm not trying to defend you to the world. I don't need to. I want to defend you from the world. Christians need to stop spending our time trying to beg the world to like us and accept us. Friendship with the world, as we read this morning, is enmity with God. Don't be driven by worldly things. But as Paul says in Colossians 3, set your mind on things that are above. And Peter explains what that looks like throughout this epistle. We see it all throughout the New Testament. But what makes this a serious problem for us is that the world clearly does not take kindly to those who are so different. Oh, I know the world likes to boast about its tolerance and inclusivity. And maybe in some ways that is true. But that does not apply to religions and worldviews and moral values. And that has become abundantly clear, hasn't it? So when a Christian proclaims his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and when he preaches the gospel of peace, and when he lives according to godliness and Christian virtue, this world takes offense. And so it is to be expected that there are going to be some negative consequences for living the way Peter has instructed us here in Scripture. The Apostle Paul makes the same point in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, when he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be. You're going to face it somehow, some way, somewhere. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, 
deceiving and being deceived. You say, well, my parents didn't face that much persecution. Yeah, that's because they lived in the time that is bad. But I'm telling you, beloved, we live in the time now that has gone from bad to worse. And that's the direction it keeps going. I'm not an alarmist. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not calling you to that. Just understand, this world is no friend of your faith or your God. And if you're going to follow that God, this world will be no friend of you. This is the reality of living as a Christian in a sinful world, in every generation. And so it should not surprise us, especially since Jesus himself said it in John 15. Verses 18 through 20, if the world hates you, and it will, why? Because you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. <laughs> There's a powerful statement. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, that is, I made you holy, I set you apart unto myself, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, understand, this doesn't mean that we ought to be living paranoid, fearful lives. We don't need to be seeing persecution under every rock in everything that the world does. To live that way would be to completely miss the point of what Peter is teaching here, and it would actually be a lifestyle that is contrary to a life of steadfast hope in a foreign land. We've already been taught to live as good citizens here, right? And now the point is that when we live as Christians in an unchristian world, we ought not to be surprised that the world rejects us and even mistreats us. Therefore, the Apostle John says in 1 John 3.13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't be surprised. And Peter will write later in this epistle, in chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, that we should not be surprised or shaken in our faith when the world mistreats us, but we should rejoice. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. This is normal. But rejoice, he says, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. But if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or, a, or as a meddler. So now he's saying, don't, don't suffer because you're a sinful person. Don't, this suffering is not talking about those who've just been jerks in the world. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. And with that in mind, then, we need to notice, thirdly, how we should respond to this suffering, to this mistreatment from the world on account of our faith. Now, remember, Peter is specifically addressing those who are suffering as Christians on account of their Christian beliefs and behavior, this unjust suffering. And he makes it clear here, if we suffer because we sin or if we have somehow sinfully and legitimately provoked the anger of the world, then we deserve what we get. 
You go out and behave in a provoking way, an ungodly way, then you're going to get mistreatment from the world too. But that's not what Peter is talking about here. He says in verse 20, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? That's not distinctly Christian suffering. But if when mindful of God, and when you do good and suffer for it, how are we to respond? Are we to take to the streets and demand that our voices be heard? Are we to fight for our rights? Are we to attack our enemies and seek to humiliate them and destroy them? No. What word does Peter use twice in these verses to describe the Christian's response to the unjust mistreatment that the world gives? You see it? It's the word endure. Endure. Now, there's also the word gracious, but we'll get to that in a minute. First, let's look at the word endure. That takes us right back to what we learned last week in response to our to evil civil authorities and to unreasonable masters. How are God's people supposed to respond? First and foremost, with submission and respect. Is there a time to stand up? Yes, but there's also a way to stand up. And we must never sacrifice our godly character for the sake of taking our stand. Here, when the world's hostility is aimed at God's people for living as God's people, we are called to endure. And the idea there is that we are called to keep on doing what we're supposed to be doing. Keep on doing the right thing and doing it the right way with the right purpose so that we, even in the midst of our mistreatment and our suffering, might showcase godly behavior and godly character so that the world might see not us, not our victory, but so that they might see the goodness and grace of our God. And so once again, when we have to take a stand against the world and its pressure, it is never because we are seeking to preserve ourselves it is never because we're seeking to defend ourselves, but because we are immovably committed to obeying God's will. That's verse 15 we saw. And because we are pointing the world to him. That's verse 12. So once again, we find that we are not just called to do the right thing, but we are also called to do the right things in the right way. And so our endurance is not meant to be like the world's endurance. Our endurance is not meant to be combative, stubborn, in-your-face defiance that is modeled by the world in so many ways. Our endurance is to be governed by the teaching of Scripture and the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. As we saw last week in Galatians chapter 5, we are to be marked in all things, as people of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So like we saw last week, that complaint that you had to file about your boss to his boss, is it marked by those characteristics? 
that stand you had to take in the workplace or in your neighborhood or before civil authorities on moral grounds or as we talked about, that letter you've written to the city council. Was it marked by these characteristics? You see. And again, in Titus chapter 3, we're told to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Can you do that while you suffer for being a Christian? Can you show those characteristics while being beaten for your faith? I don't know. Ask Hugh Latimer. Ask Nicholas Ridley. Ask John Huss. Men who could rejoice and sing songs while their bodies are being burned at the stake. How does that happen? Because these men were models of what Peter is teaching us here, of how Christians suffer. We need to understand that living a godly, holy, heaven-centered life in this world will come with a cost. The world will not like it, and the world will resist it. Why? Because people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. That's what Jesus said. And so we must not be surprised when the world treats us as strange, as outcasts, and wants nothing to do with us or our ways. We must not be afraid of that. We must not be shaken by the world's rejection and mistreatment. We must endure. We must remain faithful. We must not think that because the world is rejecting us that we've done something wrong. We must remain faithful. We must keep on living for our King, serving Him faithfully, remaining steadfast in our hope with our eyes on the Word and our hearts toward heaven as we love God and long to be with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't hear any amens. I'll give you credit because it's probably just because it was a long sentence. But I hope you understand what that sentence means. And that brings us to consider two more consequences of honorable living, both of which are now positive and encouraging. You say, is there something encouraging about that passage? Yes, there is. And it is motivating. It is stirring for God's people to remain faithful and steadfast in their hope. This text shows us that another consequence of honorable living, of godly living, is favor with God. Think about that. Favor with God, though all the world hates you. Twice in verses 19 and 20, Peter uses the phrase, this is a gracious thing. That can literally be translated as, it is commendable, or this finds favor. And we are told in verse 20 that this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 
you know, the one who created all things, the one who governs all things and upholds all things, and the one who will, with perfect clarity and perfect discernment and perfect justice and perfect judgment, hold all things accountable. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. When you endure, you find favor in the eyes of that God. Now you tell me who's on the right side of history. In other words, when you live a godly and holy life in this world as a Christian, and you endure even when the, even in the face of the world's rejection and ridicule and mistreatment and abuse, your godly character, your godly behavior, and your godly perseverance finds favor in the sight of God. God commends it. He praises it. He receives it. And he will reward it. And when we have the favor and promise of God, we do not need to be fearful or shaken or overcome by what the world thinks of us. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4. Again, I've already looked at these verses once. I want you to look at them with your own eyes in your text. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 19, excuse me, 12 through 19. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice. How is it that we rejoice in a fiery trial? We rejoice because our hopes are set on the favor of God and we have it. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings so that you, also, you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. Verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's where he's going with all this, by the way. This talk of endurance, he's going to get to that. And in chapter 2, he's going to look at Jesus as an example who endured unjust suffering by entrusting himself to his Father. And it's amazing, when you look back at the book of Acts and you see the mistreatment of the early Christians by the religious leaders when they're told, you will not preach. And they say, yes, we will. And they go on preaching and they drag one of them out of the city and they beat him almost to death. The next day he gets up and where does he go? Right back into the city to keep preaching. And when they're threatened and when some of their leaders are beaten and the saints gather together in a locked room to pray for boldness, what do they pray? They pray that they'd be faithful and they praise God that they have been counted worthy to suffer for his name. When you're mistreated for the sake of Christ. Rejoice. Because there is assurance to be found in that. Turn over now to Romans chapter 8. 
and see Paul's conclusion on the matter. Romans chapter 8. If you're not familiar with Romans chapter 8 and chapter 9, that is your assignment this week. You need to read those chapters as much as you possibly can throughout this week. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a, that's a first century way of saying you and God make a majority. Okay? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's Peter's point. Look at who God is and what he has done. You don't think he's going to carry you through every situation in this world? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Courts of this world got nothing on me. 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. That pretty much sums up any kind of hardship we could face in this world. Can that separate us? Can any of that separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's how God's people sometimes feel in this world. Verse 37, no, in all these things, not in spite of all these things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, it doesn't get more comprehensive than that, right? Oh wait, it does. Nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is no one going to say amen to that? Seriously. This is what it looks like to have the favor of God rest on your soul. And if you have this, then let the world burn everything else. And in our perseverance and in our endurance, we not only find the favor of God, but we also show that we are following Christ. Following Christ. Peter says in verse 21, For to this you have been called. Don't think it's surprising. This is part of what it means to be a Christian. You've been called to this. Because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now, we'll get to the example of Christ, Lord willing, next week. That's where we're going. Yeah, point number four isn't the letter C. It's the letter E. 
But here, in this context, we need to notice the call of Christ, the call to follow him. When we suffer for his sake, we demonstrate that we have been called by him and that we are following him, that we belong to him. And when we live a life of holy character, godly endurance in the the face of ungodly treatment, we demonstrate that we belong to Christ, that we are living for him, and that we follow Christ. If anyone has ever told you that becoming a Christian will make all of your dreams come true, and that being a Christ follower is supposed to bring you earthly wealth and happiness and joy and peace and prosperity and comfort or anything like that, then you have been deceived and that devil has lied to you. You hear it all the time on TV. Don't listen to those people. They didn't die for you. It is not their church. And they are not communicating the message of the one to whom the church belongs. Jesus said in Matthew 26, verses 24 through 27, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. You are not the center of your world. Not only let him deny himself, but also take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And here's the encouragement. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in return for his soul? That's what the world is wanting you to pursue. That is the pressure that you are feeling. Forget the soul. Save yourself. And Jesus is saying it doesn't work that way. You save your life, you'll lose it. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Then he will repay each person according to what he has done. He will repay. Friends, your heart is set on this world. You will face an eternity with this world. Under God's judgment. But if you endure and follow Christ, if your heart is set on Him and the eternal inheritance that He has given to you, you will be repaid in accordance with the favor of God. And though all the world around you crumble and perish, though all the world around you turn its rockets of fury and unleash them on you. You are safe. You are preserved. You can stand firm. You can be faithful. You can live a shining, glorious, godly life in the midst of your suffering because you are more than a conqueror through 
him who loves you, to the Savior whose favor rests upon you, who has gone to prepare a place for you. So do not be troubled. Believe in him. And Christian, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because you know that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Let's pray.